Democracy Sausage is supported by advertising provided by our podcast host so that we can keep making what you love. Great pods that tackle the important issues. For more great podcasts, go to policyforum.net forward slash podcasts. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello and thanks for joining us once again on Democracy Sausage, coming to you from the Australian National University's renowned Crawford School of Public Policy. My name is Mark Kenny and as always there's been so much to talk about in national and international affairs, particularly over the last week. After a pretty indulgent week of Parliament, the first for a new decade, what have we learnt? Well, first, that despite a summer of, in, of seemingly unending tragedy and hardship for so many Australians, our politicians remain some of the most insensitive, most tribally conservative, even anti-intellectual in the Western world. While Tory-led Britain moves decisively to a low-carbon future and actually, actually steps up its phase-out of new internal combustion-powered cars, down under, we seem to prefer simply, well, I don't know, going under – Remember all that crap about the end of the Australian weekend and the demise of the tradies ute because Labor wanted to get to 50% electric car sales by 2030? Second, we learned that in Canberra, the politics of intrigue and white-anting and instability and unbridled ambition remains every bit as fashionable as it was over the last dozen years or so, even on a day allocated exclusively for honouring the fallen firefighters and those who lost everything. Third, we learned that a government that didn't expect to be there still hasn't found a substantive third-term agenda beyond furiously responding to faux crises of its own invention, such as the alleged assault on religious faith or religious freedom, depending on how you want to call it, and the python squeeze of militant unionism. And fourth, and I could go on like this for a while, but let's just cap it at four for now, we learned that politicians, perhaps on both sides of the aisle, have yet to wake up to the fact that the public no longer trusts them to manage grants programs. Hence the line that ministers run the country, not public servants, merely restates the problem rather than offering a solution. Now, I haven't even mentioned the debacle of robo-debt, known by the government now we know to be illegal, nor Angus Taylor's partisan excesses. But at this point, let me bring in our panel, starting with our regular partner at the barbecue hot plate, Dr. Maria Taflaga from the most excellent School of Politics and Industrial Relations. Welcome back, Maria, from your travels. Thank you, Mark. It's, it's lovely to be back, though. After that litany of horrors, perhaps I might just get on a plane and get out of here again. <laughs> 
And I'm very glad to welcome one of the nation's best analysts, commentators, political journalists, and a fellow podcaster, Malcolm Farr. G'day, Malcolm. Hello, sir. Great to be here. Now, to both of you, buyer's remorse usually happens fairly quickly, perhaps not nine months in normally. But do you think Australian voters have got what they thought they were getting with this government? Well, uh, we were assured that uh, the era of the Muppets running the coalition was over. And quite quickly, it, it appeared that it wasn't. In fact, it's intensified. Um, there are more fussy bears running around in the uh, National Party at the, uh, at the moment than there was on the show itself. But look, <laughs> let, let, let's look at, at the reality. Scott Morrison became Prime Minister because he wasn't Peter Dutton. Uh, he was elected Prime Minister, some might argue, because he wasn't Bill Shorten, or at least he had a better set of... of um, simple solutions to complex problems, non-solutions, most of them. So having achieved that uh, lucky flow, he's now caught in the spotlight having to do things and he can't. He, You talk about buyer's regret. I think he's encouraged uh, buyers to rue that day on May 18. Well, I think what's really kind of interesting about watching this is that especially around issues like climate change, um, which are really kind of complicated because they kind of go to the fabric of how we organise society, right, and the economy and how we live and all of that. And the coalition have been spruiking for, for 10 years now, basically, this really sort of simple set of propositions, this really zero-sum set of calculations between, you know, your job and like these sort of externalities that we shouldn't really be worrying about too much, like, you know, our natural environment and all of those kinds of things. But they've actually like in reducing the everything down to really simple propositions, including like a budget surplus, they've actually reduced their capacity for manoeuvre. And they're increasingly on like this very narrow dance floor. And they they lack the skills to sort of be able to break out of this for a couple of reasons. Like I one, I don't think they really know what they want to do. And two, they can't agree on even a middle position and the whole, the whole show in terms of the coalition is actually falling apart under this under this pressure because even though they won that election, it didn't actually solve any of their problems, which were quite mammoth when they went into that campaign in the first place. Yeah, mammoth and yet, in a sense, sort of you know, completely downplayed or put in the background. And what we saw last week on the first week of parliament on that on that, on that amazing day when, as I say, they were meant to be honouring the the firefighters and people who'd lost all their uh, you know everything, and of course the devastation of so much habitat. Uh, we saw the the party of regional Australia talking about itself having a uh, you know a sort of an out of the blue really leadership tussle. Barnaby Joyce launching that attack. Matt Canavan, the a very promising and uh, well regarded minister, although a hardliner, particularly on coal. Um, but you know him resigning in support of Barnaby Joyce. We saw Lou O'Brien. Uh, a, a, yeah, <laughs> a, a Queensland backbencher who has uh, since now uh, actually left the Nationals party room. He's going to sit in the joint coalition party room. He's retaining his membership of the LNP in Queensland. Th- th- this, sorry, this is hardly slashing your wrists and you know, a demonstration of martyrdom, is it? The guy <laughs> is keeping his salary. He's staying within the government party room. He's staying within the LNP. He's guaranteeing his support for the government. Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure what, what all this fuss is about. But it's not exactly Joan of Arc being burned at the stake, is it? It really is... <laughs> So a, a big sort of look at me moment. 
probably aimed at helping Barnaby Joyce. Yeah, presumably, because uh, he he was the one who actually formally moved the spill motion, which mm. led to that ballot uh, that Barnaby Joyce either narrowly or not narrowly lost. Uh, of course, that, for some strange reason, has to be kept secret what the actual numbers were. You know, let's 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 imagine they were pretty close. Um, and uh, Lou O'Brien has now decided, as you say, to sort of you know, sort of, I don't know, have Clayton's resignation. You know, kind of half in, half out. He's reserving the right to be dramatic in the future. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and we're all on the edge of our seats. Exactly. But it really does speak to a, as as you were saying, Maria, this great tension within the coalition because, of course, Scott Morrison is known whether he wants to be or not now, he's known as the PM, the minister who, when he was treasurer, I think, was brandishing that piece of coal in parliament proudly saying this can't do you any harm. And, you know, the optics of that were meant to be uh, meant to be what they were at the time. He's, of course, now also known for his rather injudicious holiday in Hawaii, right, as the uh, bushfire crisis, you know, which had been going for some time, just continued on. And we see today even there are headlines saying that the coalition is looking to, the government is looking to establish new, more ambitious targets in the next climate talks uh, in in Scotland. But there are these major tensions because all of this stuff that's going on inside the Nats is about coal. I mean, that's the sort of, you know, policy issue that uh, O'Brien and Canavan and, and, and Joyce and co want to really beef up the Nats protection of the coal industry. I mean, don't worry about the farmers anymore. They're not the party of farmers, it seems. They're the party of coal. But I mean, how can how can the government, how can Morrison articulate this softening of his position when he's got this going on in the minor party? And what does it well, mean for McCormack? Well, I, I don't think he planned, in, the Prime Minister planned anything more than a microbial expansion of, uh, of, of measures against climate change. But even those are going to be very difficult to get through, as you suggest. There's a sense of apprehension, I would think, that this Royal Commission into the bushfires is going to become a single arena for the running brawl between certain Liberals and certain Nats over climate change policy, and it could get quite bloody. But look, the source of it all is, is, is something that Maria mentioned, which is Morrison thought he could get away with offering simplistic solutions to to complex problems. And when those problems overwhelmed him, he had no idea what to do. I, I, I will never forget Tuesday, the 10th of December, the Prime Minister had a press conference in Sydney. You could barely see the Harbour Bridge because mm. of the smoke. People were talking about mega fires that had been going on since uh, November or September, depending how you count it. And he had a press conference on a second attempt to get legislation approved for a religious uh, freedom bill. Now, this, this is a guy who wanted to ignore things that, wasn't, wasn't, that weren't on his simplistic map to power uh, and concentrate on something he thought had got him there, and he got caught. He could not – it's not just ineptitude. It was just stark blindness to what was a priority for Australia at the time, and I think that – in a cumulative fashion, has been the major problem with uh, Scott Morrison and it's now coming to a head with yet another uh, battle over energy stroke climate policy. Yeah, and it's interesting that uh, that attitude that he had there, that, that sort of tone deafness to that issue, or, or you might even say olfactory deafness or, or whatever. The, the olfactory None of the senses were kicking in. None of the senses were <laughs> You couldn't see across the street outside of uh, yeah. the Commonwealth offices in Sydney at the time. People were walking around with masks on. 
which is a pretty rare event. We've all had fires before, though. Yes, that, that was the sort of Perfect that was essentially the government line. And and while people, some people might think it's churlish of us to just dwell on his uh, subsequent taking of a holiday. You know, all well, families have to have a holiday, all that sort of stuff. Those sort of lines were run, but it was the same thinking that led to him. You know, taking the view that he could just leave the country, go off to Hawaii, and sit around in a pair of board shorts while volunteers, you know, fought these mega fires. I, I think what's really interesting is is the, his office and his reaction when they came back. The fact that for weeks and weeks and weeks, and <clears throat> apparently still to this day, they they feel hard done by by this level of criticism of his of his behaviour, which sort of suggests to me that they don't they don't really get it. And at and each and every turn their their response to these calamitous events that are reshaping people's lives has been to sort of just think about it in terms of, you know, a comparative political game. So they reduce everything down to sort of simple comparisons, especially with this sort of corruption stuff like, well, you know, Labor once was corrupt. So therefore mm. any kind of corruption that we engage in is fine, right? Mm. Um, you know, like they're always sort of thinking about it in in game terms and mm. the the problems have gotten to the point where you can't just wish them away they're being far too clever by half and i think enough people are deeply disturbed by this you know like yeah, it's, yeah, it's going to be. It's hard within you know contemporaneously to sort of conclusively judge the significance of this moment. I mean, we are quite early yes. in the term. Uh, there is time for the government to reposition itself. It's a question of whether it has the capacity to exactly. reposition itself. He's been a cabinet minister for six years. Yeah, they have been around for a while, haven't is. they? <laughs> Oh, it's, <laughs> a it's not a first term government. Oh, yeah, but I think I think that actually that that you know that sort of the, the it's actually kind of amazing like uh, the sort of uh, hubris of this government, given um, that they won with a one seat majority, how they were behaving um, last year, and that sort of all kind of come crashing down. But if we sort of think about this like in terms of like the Nats, for example, which I think you know, the Nationals like there that this is a really interesting dilemma, right? If you think about it, right. The, the nationals in North Queensland are worried about One Nation and the Cata Party um, ta- eating up their vote. And they're, they're doing kind of what representatives need to do, right? Like they're, they're airing grievances of the constituencies, they're speaking for their people. And, you know, the nationals are a party that have always been and very clearly based on a sectional interest, right? Like we kind of expect them to do that. Mm. But what I find kind of really interesting about this is that they keep talking about thermal coal and thermal coal jobs, but they're not they're not sort of willing to sort of think about, well, well, given market global conditions are making this future less and less pro- um, possible, they're always thinking to the next three-year election cycle. They're not thinking about their actual community's long-term futures. And one day the bottom is going to fall out if they, if they don't fight for their communities and get the government money they need for these communities to ensure that they're still there in 30 years' time Exactly, get the government time. money, get the programs, get the commitment to the transformation that the economy needs to undergo, that these regional communities are going to need to face when they become unviable. You know, there, there is a trajectory that the government is kind of being dragged kicking and screaming along, uh, but you've got, as you say, these powerful sectional interests within the government who are essentially trying to hold the line about now rather than do any kind of responsible representation about the interests of these communities in anything like the medium or longer term. You have to acknowledge the pressure coming on some of these nets yeah. at home. I mean, the new Minister for Energy and and nuclear power stations and whatever here, water. Mr. Pitt, and water, oh, everything. Um, he comes from one of the 
most disadvantaged electorates in the country, in central Queensland, Rockhampton, Bundaberg, etc. There, you know, on, I'm, I'm not providing excuses. Scott Morrison's the master of excuses as opposed to remorse. But uh, Mr. Pitt would be facing these sort of demands. Can't, can't we just dig a hole and get more jobs? Every day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he's responding to, to his constituents. To, to that degree, you can understand why he and Senator Canavan, etc., are very gung-ho on coal. But as you say, you've got to look in the longer term and that and, – and Responding uh, within three years to the complaints of, of a constituent is not a longer term process. Let's let's uh, sort of broaden this out and talk about now Morrison's position. Going back to this point about having what they won the election on, Maria. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it was it was jobs and growth and the surplus. surplus yeah. Right now, growth remains very pale. The surplus now looks like what it's uh, it's it, it's either gone or it's going very quickly as a result of a, a multiple of challenges. So that this whole third term agenda thing is is a bit of a problem, isn't it? I mean, I, I you know perhaps I am just naive and just don't get it, but I always found their weddedness to the surplus last year really strange, right? Like, surely you should just you should just play the ground that you're on. If you've got like a, a crisis coming, you know, use that as an excuse to kind of pivot out of this untenable position. And you know, I, I kept hearing people sort of saying like, well, you know, that's the only thing they promised, and all of that. Um, but you know, given like how effective they have been at being sort of shameless in the past, I just I just never understood why they kind of stuck to this policy position and I'm happy for you two to enlighten me on this. But they're sort of now they're now kind of stuck in this 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 really tight corner where they've they promised a surplus, like they said they'd already achieved it, right, last mm. year during the election campaign on Lee Sales seven thirty report. Um, you know, and I can see how that's kind of embarrassing for them to to have to to walk away from. But it's not like there aren't really good reasons, right? Like you know, we could have a surplus or we could protect people's jobs and long-term futures. We could rebuild our communities. Like, I just, I just, I find this really strange and I just don't understand it. Like, what am I missing? You sound like those communists in the Reserve Bank. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Demanding infrastructure investment as opposed to building coal mines. Look, I, I think the stark reason why they went with their, you know, back in the black and on mm, track, put on that. your Mac, <laughs> was a, as a, a political point of differentiation yeah. to Labor. And, and that, was, that was almost the sum total for it. All right, we're better economic managers. What's emblematic of that? A surplus. Let's go with a surplus. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite clear that it was a very strong line of argument all the way through. I mean, Joe Hockey was promising surpluses uh, quite early on in the piece, and, of course, we know they didn't come close to materialising. But he wouldn't, you know, this treasurer wouldn't be the first one to mention the surplus before it's got there. Wayne Swan, I think, stood up and announced two or three of them in a row, uh, none of which yeah, had yeah. emerged. Hasn't I mean, there were good reasons for it not emerging. Yes. There were very good reasons for it not emerging. There was that little uh, hiccup there. The, the GFC. But, uh, yes, it is It is an interesting thing. I, I, I do think there was a lot of politics in it. They wanted to be the party that was the first one to balance the books and to fit into that narrative line that they've always stuck to, which is we're better managers of the economy and of the budget. We're more frugal. Labor never delivers surpluses and we will get the you know the books back in order and that's fine and you know to, to be fair to Josh Frydenberg he is now 
running a, a more nuanced line saying, well, this is why you have surpluses to deal with the kinds of crises that we are now facing, whether it be coronavirus, the, about which we're going to talk more after the break, uh, or obviously the bushfire crisis, the extended drought, and of course now floods as well, and mm. not to mention hail and everything else, that all the other biblical I'm blights. Just waiting that, for uh, the locusts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, they, I think they're in Africa at the moment, but you know, you never know. What about uh, let's let's just move quickly because we, we we'll just scoot through another couple of issues. Uh, Angus Taylor, I mean, is he uh, the, the you know Clover Moore came out last week and uh, you know really was very upset about the fact the AFP have dropped the investigation into Angus Taylor's forged letter uh, attack on on Sydney City Council. What do you think about this, Malcolm? Is is Taylor? I mean, he, he obviously has always regarded himself as. Um, Pretty damn good. Um, oh yeah, is well, he, yeah. He he's, he's, doesn't look like he's resigning, but has he peaked? I think he's going to have to carry this on his back for for the rest of his career. Look, to to a degree, I'm sympathetic with the AFP. They 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 hate having to look into these archly political sort of uh, situations, particularly when there is no evidence of you know something really criminally uh, well, uh, active. Except that it was pretty malicious and they what, what, they worried about swinging resources away from investigating oh, yeah, journalists. Yeah, yeah. But, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, well, that's right. Yes, you don't, don't want to, you know, there, there are plenty of journalists' underwear drawers to be gone through. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't want to waste. A whole gallery. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. But look, uh, uh, back to uh, Mr. Taylor, he has offered no convincing or solid explanation for why a set of numbers came from his office in a letter above his signature, not just to the Lord Mayor of Sydney, but to a newspaper. Mm. It was a deliberate attempt at uh, uh, political smart arsery. He got caught and believes there's no way, no reason why he has to explain himself or his office. That's why it's going to be left dangling over him. I just think that we keep seeing this, right? Political actors who are like, they're called the honourable member for X for a reason. It's a position of privilege. They're supposed to be uh, representing us and being held to a higher standard. You know, that's why we pay them well, so on and so forth. And they just keep saying things like, um, well, you know, Labor did it once or or that it, it doesn't ultimately matter. Like issues of integrity should just be, they should be a threshold standard. And if, if the AFP is not the right investigative body because of its relationship to the to the government and the fact that it is awful for them to investigate these kinds of issues. Doesn't that kind of bring to the fore why we need an actual Commonwealth Integrity Commission that could actually do this kind of work? Because at least it would create an incentive for politicians to think twice about engaging in this kind of, to be blunt, bullshit mm. all the time. Yeah. Mm. And, it, and it does rather, I think, stick in the craw for people, uh, particularly those people who've been subject to the vigorous uh, and absolutely enthusiastic uh, pursuit uh, under the robo debt program of minor minor overpayments that may mm. go back years and for which they Indeed. have uh, uh, suddenly a reversal of the burden of proof where they have to prove that they didn't you know weren't eligible for a certain amount of money, mm. which now turns out to have been an illegal process at least according to some of the legal advice that's come to light. Um, the government on the one hand prosecuting you know, very, very uh, not well-off people in many cases when uh, we find situations emerging where grants programs have been absolutely rorted, where uh, political attacks using forged documents have been launched and where 
there are limited or no, you know, no consequences for those in power. Differing standards of accountability. And and I think, as you said at the start, if the government thinks that the uh, Mr. Taylor's episode and and Bridget McKenzie's episode uh, has simply washed over the electorate without uh, sinking in, it's quite wrong. It's reinforced an attitude that these guys go around spending our money and they don't have to be accountable. That is so dangerous for all politicians. Just if one journalist is caught faking uh, a, a news report, it really reflects on everybody in in our craft. The same goes for politicians. Yes, although they are held to a lower standard, I suppose. And and in fact, that's that's actually a, a corrosive thing in itself, isn't it? When you hear people say, and I've said this before on this podcast, but you know, you hear people say all politicians lie, and the, the acceptance of that is a is a corrosive thing in a democracy. Yeah. Mm. Actually, mm. they don't. No, we that's right. We shouldn't accept this. We shouldn't mm. let people say that and just move on because it actually diminishes all of us. Quite yeah. right. Very well put. Now, stay with us during the following short announcement because when we return, we'll be joined by one of the world's leading authorities on infectious diseases to discuss the novel coronavirus. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Thanks for sticking with us. It's now my pleasure to welcome Professor Peter Collignon, AM, Professor of ANU Medical School, uh, Pathology and Infectious Disease Physician and Microbiologist at Canberra Hospital. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for having me. Now, of course, the, the big issue globally, the big crisis globally at the moment is this novel coronavirus. Can you just give us a snapshot of sort of where we are up to with this thing? Is it getting worse? Is it is it abating? Uh, is, 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 are we even in a position to make observations about that? Well, I think with coronavirus, there's good news and bad news. Um, the good news first is that um, it looks like it had a reasonable high mortality of 2%, but I think that's going to be much lower when we get more numbers. So far, really what's being collected, particularly in China where most of the cases have occurred, and I think there's now 40,000 reported cases, would be people who've gone to health centres, hospitals, you know, doctors. So that picks the people who are sicker. Hmm. So, and some different modelling, as much as you can believe that, um, suggests that, you know, there's over 100,000 people already with it. So the baseline will be much bigger. Now, that's good news because, well, you know, a a 0.1% mortality is much better than 2%. But it's still one in a 1,000 people, and I even hope it might be lower than that. But the bad news, if there's so many mild cases out there, there's a lot more cases. So it'll be much harder to contain. So from my perspective, this virus is similar to SARS. It was also coronavirus. That truly had about a 10% mortality. 
And so this is good because it's probably 10 times lower than that, maybe 100 times lower. The bad news is there's probably more spread in the community than with so SARS. So it's more infectious but less deadly. Yes, basically, is would be my take. Now, you can then say, well, is all we're doing a waste of time because we're never going to control it? Uh, again, I'm a bit optimistic that we might be able to. Uh, again, I saw some modelling put out today that suggested that even in the Hubei province, they might peak mid-February to late February. Now, that actually is good because there's probably 20 million people that live there. And if only 100 or 200,000 get infected at all, well, I think that shows, hey, it is controllable. And I think the cruise ships uh, may actually be a good example of what to look to. I mean, that particularly that cruise ship that's in Japan currently that has, I think, about 70 people infected. Well, you can say, oh, that's bad. Well, there's 3,500 people on that boat. And if you think about it, it's really living in a, an apartment block, everybody on top of each other, going to the same restaurants, buffets, etc. when initially there wouldn't have been much uh, extra precautions taken. It would have been mainly to stop people getting norovirus that causes diarrhea that they do routinely. But mm. So I think actually that is good if perversely there's not huge numbers of people on that boat that get infected. And we basically got a group you can follow up that where, in fact, everybody who's sick will get tested probably five times over. So we'll really know, is it controllable? And, you know, I think we're going to be wiser in four to six weeks' time when we see, well, what happens in Australia? We've had people here. How, you know, has it spread and what's the severity of the disease? So, um, you know, normally you'd think, oh, putting these great restrictions on everybody is very disruptive socially and economically for something that may, well, it's not as bad as it looks, but I still take the point, if you've got a death rate of something one in a thousand and you can make it disappear like we did with SARS, well, for every million people, that's sort of, you know, um, a thousand deaths you save. And if we can do that, that's probably worthwhile, even with the cost, et cetera. But whether we'll succeed, I think we'll be wiser in a month or two. How reliable are the numbers, though? Because there's there, there are various suspicions that uh, the Chinese authorities might not be, they might be underreporting uh, the incidence of it. Uh, we, we certainly, when we see vision of even enormous cities like uh, Beijing, you know, they're basically telling people to stay home. Uh, it, it's being taken very seriously, but there are, you know, stories, as I say, of uh, people who have uh, showing up with infection at hospitals and being turned away. Whether those stories are right or not, I'm not sure. Well, whether it is even, uh, you know, this coronavirus. Well, I actually am sure we're getting underreporting of numbers. Um, I don't actually think probably it's a conscious decision of the Chinese now to do that. I mean, I think there was a lot of evidence that from early December till early January, there was much more control and, in fact, a lack of infection precautions infection control precautions being taken because that was going to panic the population. That's, you know, some of the stories from the doctors from Wuhan. My own feeling at the moment is that the Chinese are actually being as reasonably open as you might expect them. I think the trouble is they've got a capacity on how much testing they can do and how many they can put in hospitals. I think one of the worries I have when I see, you know, pictures of the Chinese hospitals and even the new ones that were built in 12 days, mm -hmm. people are very close together. I mean, if you want to stop an infection, you've got to keep people at least a metre apart. Yeah. Um, and in fact, we'd like single rooms, thank you very much, and you know, physical barriers, because that does make a difference for lots of respiratory infections. And there was a real lack of uh, protective equipment, even basic things like masks, but you know, gloves, etc. from what I can read from media reports um, in China for quite a period of time for lots of reasons. So... Um, perversely, uh, that actually means we're much luckier in Australia. We do have enough equipment and we've got better facilities. 
Um, it's a problem when you're so crowded, you you know, what do you do? Like some of our emergency departments can be at time with people in corridors, you know, on trolleys. But we're going to be in a much better position, I think, to control this if the parameters stay what they look like they are now. But, I, but basically, we need more data. Um, the vast majority of people who get sick seem to have mild illness. And you're worse off if you're male, between, uh, particularly over 65 or between the ages of 40 and 70, and you have underlying disease. But that's also true for influenza. I yeah. mean, if you look at influenza, that probably affects 4% of the population every year, uh, predictably. Um, most of the people that die are over the age of 75. Um, the, uh, you know, and even a vaccine then isn't protecting the majority of people who die because we've got a pretty good uptake. In so them. that's why they call comorbidity. Well, comorbidity is when you have something morbid underlying, I guess, um, that might kill you, like heart disease, diabetes, lung disease. But you can see why that happens. If, uh, you know, a person in their 20s who's perfectly okay can die from flu or any of these infections. But if you're older and you've got heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, it means this can be the straw that breaks the camel's back because you've got less reserve to fight it. And eventually, if your lungs pack it up, for instance, or you don't, you know, your oxygen levels go down, well, your heart may not work as well and your brain, and your kidneys. And if it's not as flash as it should be in the first place, well, obviously there's more chance that they will fail and that probably will all combine to cause a death. The, the, the government's shunting plane loads by the plane loads people to Christmas Island. Is that a suitable place for the research and the tracking that you said was essential? Well, I think it is because it's a very close community with, as I understand, a lot of medical people there and the ability to take samples. Now, admittedly, they have to send it to Perth, so that takes a period of time. But in the short term, um, they're being separated, is my understanding, from each other. You know, you know, you don't have 300 people all mingling with each other. You have people separated, at least into family groups and small groups. So in theory, you should be able to contain it if you are able to contain it. Now, whether it needed to be Christmas Island or someplace on the Australian mainland, I think is a separate question. But I think at this stage, it's not unreasonable that people are in a facility where they are kept safe and comfortable and away from others while we're still learning over the next month or so. And my understanding is Christmas Island was picked is because they didn't have much else, you know, because, you know, everything else, if it was an army base, well, it's in disrepair now or, you know, now I don't know the truth of that and you have to ask the, obviously, government, but Christmas Island was at least a facility there working and functioning with the ability to look after health in part. Um, uh, you know, going to a mining camp in Darwin, which is, I think, I have no idea how, presumably the mining company kept it in good repair, but, you know, you can see a lot of facilities that are not used for a period of time. You can't suddenly dump a few hundred people in there and just with basic things like water running and adequate, you know, bedding and everything else. So I, I presume there are limited options where you've both got adequate facilities and you can keep people in reasonable comfort and isolated from everybody else for a period of two weeks. The Reserve Bank last week decided not to cut rates again, it, it's it's bias is probably it's biases to leave rates where they are at that very low level. Um, and, but it, you know, if if they move at all, uh, Philip Lowe, the, the governor, acknowledges if they were to move, it would probably be down as a result of this uh, particular issue getting worse. Um, at the moment, they're using as their rule of thumb SARS, which you mentioned before. Is that is it, do do you think that's uh, the SARS? experience is a good rule of thumb for them to be guiding sort of public policy considerations at the moment? Well, I think as a minimum it is because it's a similar virus and, you know, it's spread by similar ways. I would actually think if this goes on, this will have a bigger effect than SARS, but I'm not an economist. But, you know, I would think this is going to cause 
because I think there's more people with this and it's spread more widely. And the I economy would, is much bigger. And the economy and is bigger and, 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 and all deeper. those sorts of things. I actually think this will have a bigger economic effect than SARS because realistically, um, you know, the incubation period on average is, say, five days, but you've got to go out to two weeks to get the tail enders that might come down, say, 11 to 12 days. You'll want to quite a number of incubation periods before you stop restrictions, like two or three at least after it stops or after it looks like it's stopping. And on top of that, we've got in Australia, well, we're coming into winter. Well, that's more of a risk for spreading any virus that's done by the respiratory route than, say, in summer. Um, so, you know, I can imagine unless something dramatically happens to change our view, like suddenly it turns off in China, which is a low probability, we might find this is disruptive for quite a few months and even, you know, as long as six months before um, you know, things are taken off. I think that it'll get taken off if we find, well, it was a bit like swine flu. The original reported deaths in Mexico in 2009 were 8%. You go, holy cow. And it was quite reasonable to have restrictions. Um, I think I got into trouble because I thought we overdid it because when the data was available from California and then in Victoria and Australia, well, the death rate was obviously much less than one in 10,000, but we're having all these restrictions based on an epidemic causing a 2% mortality like 1918. So there is an issue about judging the, if you like, the deaths and um, destruction from the virus compared to the economic, social and other costs of trying to do that. And I think that's very much dependent on the mortality rate uh, as well as the infection rate. And mm. so at the moment, I think it's quite reasonable what's being done in, in that we seem to have a hope of maybe containing this and we're better off if it disappears like SARS. But as data unfolds, I think we have to reassess that. And if you look back at the swine flu um, episode, we had a it was put out because it was thought it was going to be like, you know, 1918 all over again. Um, it became, when it eventually became apparent, and after I think a lot of politics, they um, came up with a new phase called PROTECT, which was, look, the people who are most susceptible at that stage were pregnant women, the elderly, people with underlying disease. They went to the front of the queue and got treated with whatever drugs we had and got admitted because 99% of people with the worried well, you know, were at the front of the queue hammering for drugs that they didn't need. So we, we need... May, to be very adaptable that if this changes, at the moment the data says 2%, but you know I believe it's going to go down. And when that data becomes available and is more accurate, then we might have to adapt what we do. If we can still contain it, I think it means we're going to keep on doing what we are. But if it looks like it's spreading in Germany and the US and everywhere and you, know, you can't contain it, well, then we'll need another approach. But we don't have that data yet. Isn't one of the worries, uh, I mean, I noticed that Joko Widodo, the Indonesian president, is in Canberra today as we, as we record this podcast, um, you know, having a speaking joint session of parliament and so forth. There have been no uh, cases, as I understand it, reported in Indonesia, but there are concerns. Obviously, it's a, pop a country with a huge population and with, uh, you know, uh, let's face it, a, a health service that is not as developed as, uh, as you know, the standards we expect. Is there any concern about uh, that? Uh, do we believe that? You know, I, we don't know is a short answer. And I guess how much the likelihood that you're going to get this virus depends on your trade and particularly your flights and the number of people coming in. 
um, there will likely be cases in Indonesia, along with whole lots of other places, you know, including Western countries for that matter, because most people have a mild sniffle. Well, you don't go to the doctor for that. So, you know, even in Australia or Canada or Europe, that might be a case. But you could give it to someone who you, might need to go to the doctor. You can, but yeah. there's, there's a number called an R value. And basically, if an epidemic is going to continue, one person has to infect at least one other person or more. Now, it may be that there might be some mild people around, but maybe it's not as infectious as we think. You have to have a whole lot of other things together. And maybe it's spread by the fecal rate as well, because you can actually find this virus in some fecal samples. So it may be, which is not good for Indonesia, I guess, if you've got poor water supplies, poor sanitation, that is much more likely. And even if it got into a country like Australia, if we have better facilities, better people (coughs) spread apart, that actually then means, well, yes, it might be transmitted from person to person, but not enough to cause an epidemic. But we basically don't know. And, you know, you know, I would think it'll be more transmissible in places like Indonesia than Australia, but we will have to wait and see. What do you think about the sort of public health kind of campaign response so far? I mean, you know, you, you do talk about the worried well. Do you think the public has enough information to sort of reasonably assess this risk? Well, I think actually... I think the information is out there, but whether you get it all, you know, you're going to get it mainly from the media or your friends. And um, even on the weekend, I heard things from people I know. I think, oh, no, that's, well, not my perspective at the moment, mind you. Who knows all the answers might be a separate issue. But I do think that's the advantage of these programs and others. I think the more we get out in the media without panicking people. I mean, I think there's panic about this is in the air everywhere. We're all going to get it. I think that's a mistake because I don't think there's evidence for that. Um, But I think there is evidence that if you do the things you would do every winter, wash your hands, use alcohol hand rub, don't go to work if you're sick with a sniffle or don't use public transport, keep your distance at least a metre from that will decrease. This podcast studio would not be good for this kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least nobody's coughing here. So that's (laughs) but but, you know, all those basic things for influenza do work. You decrease, if you do all the right things, you decrease the transmission by 70 or 80%. Mm. That's without drugs. So those sort of things would, in my view, apply for everything else. We don't do them all the time. All of us are slacker than we should be. I think in hospitals, we transmit it more often to sicker people if we don't take enough care. But I think there is a lot we can do to decrease the transmission, even if we don't have drugs, even if we don't have a vaccine. Because the reality is, at least for a vaccine, that's not going to be widely available, minimum of 12 months, probably longer, because you make you know, a billion doses, for instance. That's a long way out. And the drugs, well, there's some maybe experimental ones, but whether they're going to work or not and you know what are the side effects if most people have really mild disease you won't want the drug you're better off just recovering we just don't know and we don't even have what they call an antibody test now or yet to see how widely it has spread in certain communities that will come within the next month or two i would think at least early on so you know there's some things that will happen earlier than others but there's a lot we don't know but we can actually use things like influenza and even the common cold virus which kills people as well um, you know, there's a certain amount of people who get pneumonia as a complication of that, get secondary bacterial infections and die. So it's not as if this is unique. It just this seems to be up a ratchet at the moment. And it's new. new yeah. And it's new. And yeah. it's exotic because, uh, I mean, the, uh, there are suggestions there's a certain amount of racism attached to uh, anxiety over this uh, uh, 
Do, do you perceive that yourself? Well, I think, well, if the reports are that Chinese restaurant business uh, visits are down in Australia, obviously there is anxiety that's not justified by the current facts. So I think there is. I mean, a lot of influenza viruses, for instance, you know, we Hong Kong's got a name on one and, you know, the new variants seem to have something to do with China because of a lot of pigs and people mixing and that that's a good mixing pot. But the 1918 um, Spanish flu, for instance, was only called Spanish flu because Spain was neutral in World War One, so they were yeah. the only people that reported it, and it may well have come from Kansas, Kansas in the U.S. Um, that particular one that was the worst one we ever had, but nobody calls it Kansas flu. <laughs> and it is interesting, even swine flu. You know that should have been called California flu because that's where the virus was isolated, and normally you call it after the place it's first isolated, even if they were in the cause. So. There is a little bit of interest about names that I think unduly give prejudice to against some places. But, uh, you know, this one does appear to have come from China. But as another example is what do happens... We, do we know where, what... I mean, there was talk about it coming from a snake or... or yeah, well, I think snake the... is very unlikely. But what it does appear to be very similar is to another virus they've already found in bats, a 95% similarity or more. And there is another animal, I can't even find the, remember the name, but it's a mammal that's got scales or something that's an anteater. Something looks like it's the most likely. But it's like a whole lot of, HIV probably came from chimpanzees, okay? And SARS actually came from bats via something called a civet cat that I'd never heard of before as well. But, you know, that may be the way, and measles have initially came 4,000 or 5,000 years ago from cattle, okay? So most of the viruses and problems we have in people came initially from some animal source, and that's why we talk about One Health. But but what happens is it adapts to people or is in people and then can transmit person to person, and then where it came from becomes largely irrelevant because once it gets into people and is transmitting, that's the crunch. How do you stop that from happening? And I guess sometimes you might want to stop it going back to animals that might be economically or, you know, environmentally really important. Yeah. Like you don't want things going to cow or sheep because it's a big economic cost as well. Mm. Now we're almost out of time, but uh, I'm, I'm interested in how you get your information. I mean, social media gets uh, a pretty bad rap for misinformation, but uh, you were telling me before that, uh, you know, if you if you go to trusted sources, you, you find a lot of help from Twitter, for example. Yeah, I actually find Twitter has been invaluable in this particular one. I mean, I, I limit who I follow because I couldn't cope otherwise, I think. Um, And if somebody says something about this, and they're usually reputable, you know, European, American, other sites, they usually give a link to a paper or an article that I can check the source of the information because I don't retweet things that I can't see has got some validity as a data source. Now, some of those data sources can be wrong. Like, for instance, the New England Journal reported this outbreak in in Germany from somebody that visit, said they were asymptomatic. Well, that was wrong. The person was symptomatic because nobody had actually spoken to the patient. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, so even reputable places can get it wrong. But the reality is this is a quickly moving field. And you take sources that you believe are reasonably reliable, but you've got to accept even what looks like reliable sources. You've got to double check them because things change. And what I say this week may well be proven to be wrong in two weeks' time, and we just have to accept that. Well, thanks very much for that. That's really brilliant, Peter Collignon. Uh, great to talk about that and get uh, the lowdown on where we are at this stage. And can I also thank uh, Malcolm Farr and, of course, Maria Tafaga for once again joining us. Um, we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. If you want to uh, send us some feedback, uh, by all means do so on Apps Policy Forum. That's the Twitter handle. The Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod. And you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. And don't forget to subscribe because that is the uh, uh, that is the real 
usual uh, best way of uh, getting this podcast and being uh, latched onto it fully. Uh, you can do that with Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you again next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.